Coca, su naray, su naray en ti. 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 Hello, hi, we're here for the second episode of the Mango TV podcast. Today we have Jorge Ferrer, who's an author, and he's got his PhD in clinical psychology at the Institute of Integral Study of California in San Francisco. He was the chair of the East-West Psychology Chair, and now he's wrote his fourth book on love and relationship. Here we are. Hello, Jorge. Thank you for coming. Hello. Pleasure to be here. So why don't we jump straight in with your fourth book called Love and Freedom? So Love and Freedom deals with romantic relationship. Why don't we first have a quick look at the current state of affair of relationship? I mean, from, from my perspective, you know, I'm, I'm now 52. My childhood friend have been married for 20, 30, 35 years. I would say that there is a general discontent. In monogamy, some of my friends have completely eliminated sexuality from their life. And, and, and you can see that. You can see to what extent the lack of sexuality reduce vitality, reduce creativity for certain people. But I've, I've been speaking with some of my friends and, and this is a little bit of a problem. Many other friends have divorced. In America, 50% of marriage end up in divorce. So why don't you tell me a little bit, what do you see around you? Thank you. Well, uh, I think the first thing to say is that, uh, you know, cheating is no longer a thing that only men do. <laughs> it's a thing that more and more women are also doing. And that's like a shift from previous decades. In the last decades, the amount of women also who are going to uh, affairs, you know, have like really increased, uh, almost reaching the levels of men. So that's like an important uh, factor here. Um, Because, you know, like cheating was something that our blessed grandmothers used to say is like, oh, that's just what men do. No longer is so. So for me, always, I always like to look at the deeper uh, reasons or deeper motivations underlying uh, people's behaviors that could be damaging for others. And like in my own research, both kind of like uh, through study and also like through talking with numberless uh, people who have uh, committed uh, infidelity or affairs, I see two things. One is that, of course, there is like certain people, especially men, you know, who can't really cheat for um, very kind of like self-centered, selfish reasons, sometimes, you know, narcissistic reasons, sometimes they need like a boost in their self-esteem as men, sometimes, you know, they're just, you know, humanizers in some ways, things they have learned. But ultimately, I think like an increasing or even perhaps most people who, who cheat these days, they are cheating because they are lacking something really vital in their lives. And normally uh, cheating occurs when after quite a number of years, you know, of partnership in a monogamous structure in which the, as you mentioned, uh, the vitality and the regeneration powers of sexuality has decreased and then the um, monotony has enter and the routine has entered and one of the things that most people who cheat tell couples therapists you know is that uh, ultimately you know when they go deep down they say like you know i did it to feel alive again you know so this is very important uh, there's something very vital behind cheating and the other thing to understand is that people cheat not because they don't love their partners you know if they don't love their partners they would leave them But they cheat because they want to stay with them and at the same time they don't want to sacrifice, you know, that vitality and that energy in their lives, you know. So that's like a paradox. They cheat because they love their partners and they know or they suspect that their partners would not support uh, that openness. We could talk much more, but uh, let's, let's flow to see where you want to go with all this. Yes, yes. I'm thinking about what uh, Christopher Ryan, you know, we, we produce a documentary called Monogamish, which is available on, on Mango TV. And, and Christopher Ryan has a background of anthropology and him with the wife at the time, they spent 20 years researching the animal kingdom, looking for monogamous species. And he says that there are, there are non-monogamous species. They sometimes mate for life, but there is no 
monogamous species. Is that true? I think he's right. I mean, it was not his research. It was Barash and Lipton research who established this fact like that. But many species that were thought to be biologically monogamous are actually only socially monogamous, <laughs> but actually uh, behind the bushes <laughs> and they have other lovers, <laughs> especially all those little birds that, um, you know, were, we, we took as the, you know, the epitome or the symbol of romantic love, but definitely also in the, you know, mammals. And yeah, there are very few species who are monogamous. There is like some mices, you know, that are seemingly monogamous, but there is very, very rare. That's, I think that's completely right. What do you think about this idea that reciprocal monogamy is a very recent concept. Someone in the documentary was arguing that men impose monogamy on women for most of history of humankind, but it's only with the woman uh, right in the 60s that reciprocal monogamy really became uh, a thing. You know, without, without generalizing or universalizing, I think that's completely right. I'm sure there were exceptions throughout history of like couples who stayed together and, and men who were loyal to their wives. But I think it's completely right. Like, I think uh, it's only like the 50s and 60s in particular and 70s that it was like what Anthony Giddens talks about, a democratization of spirituality uh, and democratization of relationship of intimacy in particular, not spirituality. So um, in that with women's revolution and women's rights and entering the labor market you know the exactly that that changed the rules of the game but historically what we see like throughout history and throughout the world mostly with many exceptions of course uh, here and there and indigenous tribes and so forth but what we see is like you know men having many women and uh, controlling female sexuality <laughs> of their wives you know so that's uh, that's very sad but that's like i think an accurate assessment of our history <laughs> in Larger strokes. <laughs> so, how do you explain that we have this this concept, you know, of monogamy, which is not working, is not natural, and it's very recent, but yet we take it as the, the default mode system and, and, and we beat ourselves down if we're not good at it? H- how do you explain that contradiction? Yes, yes. Well, I think the roots of uh, this system and that uh, I elaborate in the book about them in some some places is like a, you know, like a, I mean, patriarchy plays a huge role. You know, patriarchy and the control of female sexuality, especially the concern of many men of like you know raising kids from your neighbor versus your own kids and giving children from another man uh, your inheritance. I mean, that that was probably the origin of a lot of you know throughout. Cultures, a lot of the men control for women's sexuality, you know, that that reads, of course, delirium proportions in the medieval ages with mm-hmm. the chastity belt, right? Mm-hmm. So that was on the one hand, and that also was very much very reinforced by the um, Judeo and especially Christian ethics, mm-hmm. Christian ethics and uh, Christian morality, and uh, in which women also were considered to be uh, embedded also like the, the archetype of the, the Madonna and the whore, you know, like your wife uh, and women who were supposed to be pure and and, uh, and non-sexual, and at the same time, men wanted sexual women, you know, so embedded like this split in, mm-hmm. also in the men's psyche and in women's psyche as well. So there were like many factors actually in the emergence of monogamy in Europe, also economic factors, and uh, there were many, many factors, but I think patriarchy and Christian religion, I think, were like two of the major ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. And so... You know, this conversation is definitely not a substitution for the book. So the book is coming out in, uh, when is the book coming out? July 15th. July 15th. And where where can our audience look for the book? Uh, Amazon.com. Amazon.com. It's called Love and Freedom, Jorge Ferrer. But so can you discuss a little bit your attempt to depolarize this conversation between um, monogamy and polyamory? It's it's funny because it's such a charged theme, right? You ask... Mm -hmm hardcore monogamous and they really trash polyamory and you ask uh, hardcore polyamorous and they trash monogamy there's a lot of charge uh, you call it monophobia the, the monopoly wars the monopoly war the yes monopoly wars that situation of mutual uh, judgment and condescension between poly and monogamous people you know and then there are those attitudes are full but they are polyphobia and monophobia yeah, yes yes so like some monogamous people like have like this sense of like disgust or moral judgment or like about 
poly people, and but the other way around happens as well. Yes, many many poly people in the tribes like they think like monogamous are very hypocritical because they wanted really to deep down to do what they are doing and they don't. They are cheating. They are adulterers. They haven't really access, you know, like the essence of love that is uh, non-possessive and inclusive. You know, it's fascinating. Like and also monogamous people say the same to poly people. It's like no, you have not access like true love. If you access true love with someone, you will become monogamous you know so it's just fascinating how they they charge each other with the same with the yes. same issues so so what you're suggesting you know as you might agree any conversation that is so polarized is not really constructive and so um, i think that you're trying to to depolarize this conversation a little bit like what's happening with gender there is now a, a movement that it talks about gender fluidity uh, can you explain a little bit this concept of novogamy Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's like uh, in the same way that like uh, the transgender movement kind of deconstructed, you know, the gender binary or dichotomy a few years ago, a few decades, one decade ago, like most people thought themselves I'm a man or a woman. And now we can see like through the lived experience of many, many people that there is a lot of in between. So in a way, what I'm doing is something very similar with the binary or the dichotomy between monogamy and polyamory, like uh, really opening a field of possibilities in between that I call novogamy, like novo from new, uh, new forms of relationships from the 21st century, you know, and that kind of forms of novogamy can take different different types, different pathways. One, for example, is kind of like more what I call more, um, you know, like a fluid form of novogamy in which, for example, we realize that different moments of our lives will have different developmental pools or circumstances, ourselves or our couples that may call us to be monogamous or be poly. So it's not that we are one thing or the other, it's that at different moments of our lives we are one or the other, therefore we, you know, essentially, it's not that we are mono or poly, it really depends. And also, also this, also, uh, this form of fluid monogamy also, like, translates into, like, um, you know, geographical, you know, like, uh, some people today, they're monogamous at home, they're monogamous, like, when they are, like, uh, in, their, in their country, but um, when she, he or she in the partnership travels, they give each other like free passes, like monogamous relationships, the documentary. So some people are just monogamous in normal life, but they are more poly when they go to festivals like Burning Man or Boom or certain clubs, you know. So are you monogamous or poly? It really depends on where you are, you know. And uh, the second one would be like more hybrid, uh, like in which is the coexistence of mono and poly values. And one of the things that for me was like more clear, and I've seen it some, in so many people, is like people say, for example, oh, I'm monogamous. But some people can say that because they believe in monogamy or even they feel in their hearts, but sometimes sexually they're actually desiring polyamory. And, uh, and vice versa, other people could be like more sexually very monogamous, but emotionally or intellectually believe in polyamory. So are these people monogamous or polyamorous? They are both, you know. So I'm trying to deconstruct that binary in many different ways, you know. The last the last one, I'll just is one example of, uh, the last one is like I call more transcendent mode, you know, uh, in which like some people kind of reach a new identity, like the transgender people did in that um, you know transcends being monogamous and polyamorous and that can be called like being novogamous like novogamy or not some people may just reject all kind of category like more anarchic forms you know or take it as a kind of like an existential zen koan you know i don't care you know about terms you know i'm just living this space you know of like freedom to relate to different people in different ways uh, according to you know, circumstances and developmental pools. And also, of course, something that's important is that because this kind of can degenerate in a very kind of narcissistic, you know, like I do whatever I want. And of course, in my book, I take pains in emphasizing that this needs to be done with a lot of kind of mindfulness about social oppression, social privilege, and also the impact of our actions on others, you know. So I think there is ways in which we can uh, walk any path, monogamous, polyamorous, or novogamous with ethics and mindfulness, or just from a very selfish and careless way. Yes, yes. It's incredible how you see couple in love that would say things like, oh, I will take a bullet for him or for her. But then when there is maybe a slip of an in, on a sexual encounter on a business trip, that became ground for divorce, which is destroying families. And, and you know, 
of course I can't say the name, but we have a couple of friends that she just discovered that after she was she was not feeling very sexual for quite a long period of time, she discovered that the man saw a call girl. And now they're divorcing. She felt like betrayed. So I think there is a little bit of schizophrenic behavior on, around mm-hmm. this topic and there's so much charges. And I agree with you that, you know, especially in long-term relationship, there are moments where the monogamy is needed for a certain spiritual path or for a certain dealing with certain issue. But then, you know, in a long 20, 30, 40 years relationship, I think that we should, with this conversation, with your book, try to destigmatize mm. this idea that um, the sexual encounter can be done outside the couple with permission. Mm. What, what I feel, it, it's it's still a big stigma in, in our society. Even in, you know, we both, Jorge and I live in Ibiza, which is famous for sexual liberation. <laughs> but even in the most open circle, this idea of being open or being non-monogamous is still a little bit judged. So what what advice do you have for people that are intrigued Mm. and might want to consider maybe non-emotional polyamory, but as a first Mm. step, they decided to be emotionally monogamous, but sexually non-monogamous. Is there there a workshop or, I mean, definitely I would recommend your book, but how how can a couple go, Mm. go about starting a process of opening up. Yes, 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 that's great. Well, I think it really depends on the circumstances. It really also depends on if, for example, there has been a situation of like an infidelity and catalyzing um, the discussion between them or is something more hypothetical. I think it really changes. Uh, but uh, definitely like two clear ways is like one, again, kind of like support from, um, you know, a relationship counselor uh, that is really neutral, that is really uh, open to both monogamy and polyamory that they have no agenda. I offer some of these uh, counseling practice myself, but there are many other talented people, you know, in the world today. So um, the problem is that most uh, couple psychotherapists are kind of polyphobic and they do microaggressions. There has been this empirical studies, even like towards poly people, when poly people come to their, you know, practice the room, they start looking at them like, wow, you, you have a problem. <laughs> uh, they pathologize poly people. So it's very, very important that you really find uh, a couple's therapies or relationship counselor that uh, that is really educated, educated in the, uh, and understands that both polyamory and monogamous are very valid options. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, of course, is to really connect to, to the tribe, <laughs> to the larger community of like poly people, because if you are a couple opening your relationship and all your friends who are couples are monogamous and they have judgments towards what you're doing and perhaps fear that what you're doing is going to, you know, spread into the relationships, it's going to be very hard. But if you surround yourself with people who are living that, who have had more experience than you, uh, I think that could be really, really helpful. Yes, yes, yes. There is a, there's a community in Portugal called Tamera that is, you know, one of the founding principles is the, you know, non-monogamy. I mean, they, you can be monogamous and live in Tamera, but non-monogamy is as accepted and it's actually integrated on on the way of living. So, of course, you know, like-minded peers is definitely the safest way to go about non-orthodox practice. But so the common case, just to be a little bit more realistic, <laughs> is that men would love to open up, men would love sexual diversity, but they are afraid to give it to the wife or to the girlfriend. So what is it about woman's sexuality that terrifies men so much? Well, I have several thoughts about this. The first one is that's changing as well. And, uh, and I think even that that framing is a bit problematic in the sense that it still uh, perpetuates the stereotype of men being sexual and women being coy. And and that's I don't buy that, you know. I think women are super sexual and actually, actually they, they love also sexual diversity as much as even more than men. <laughs> Problem is that culturally they have been more repressed, you know, about their sexual desire, you know. And, uh, you know, they would be called sloths or whores if they show how des- desiring they are, you know. Well, men are being called, like, oh, you're super macho, you're like a guy, right? This is the double patriarchal, double standard, right? So no one hundred is that, you know. But, but of course, like in like men, like in particular, like, you know, this is the whole history of the weight of patriarchy, of control of female sexuality, you know, in the background. And at the same time, like for many men, like they are 
you know, I think like they, they you know, many men cheat because they, they, they don't want their wives to know because they're afraid they would do the same. <laughs> they would be with other men, you know, and that's something that many, many even really good friends of mine who have worked on a lot of psycho-spiritual work, they couldn't tolerate, they couldn't tolerate. And, uh, and I think that's something to, you know, for men who are in a path of self-growth to, to look deeply, you know, what, what are the fears? What am I, am I afraid of being compared? Am I afraid of being abandoned by an, a better lover? I'm afraid that my wife, my love, would like someone better than me. And that's understandable concerns. <laughs> but that can happen and is happening actually all the time without the opening, <laughs> right? So in a way, it's like uh, some people think that by closing the relationship, like they're securing, you know, their, their, their wives or and talking about men towards women. While at the same time, this sometimes is like a clock bomb because uh, the closing sometimes can really explode. <laughs> and it does all the time. And at the same time, there are also risks in the opening. So life is a risk. The relationships are a risk. There's no security. The Buddha told us <laughs> uh, trying to live in certainty is a pathway towards suffering. So we really need to be more spacious. And of course, of course, like deep trust with your partner. That's the deeper root. With the woman I was more in love in my life, uh, we had an open relationship. And there was like such a deep trust in our communion, in our love, that uh, we didn't experience any threat. Uh, about the opening and of course clear communication and so forth but uh, definitively there is no relationship that is not uh, complicated <laughs> in some ways but do, do you think that one of the main obstacle for a successful opening up is is this fear of of abandonment fear of fear of not being enough and this is something which is deeply rooted in our western materialistic culture most of us have trauma from childhood where, you know, our parents lost interest in us, mm-hmm. like most parents do, mm-hmm. or, or not most, but, and, and, and we internalize that it's our fault. It's not mm-hmm. that they got distracted because they have something in the, a lot on their plate. Mm-hmm. We think when we're like five, six, seven, eight, nine, that they got distracted because we're not worthy of their love. So we internalize, and, you know, of course I'm simplifying, we, inter- yes. we internalize this feeling that we're not enough and then we project in our relationship this fear and we are terrified about about opening up so maybe the recommendation is to work on this fear work mm-hmm. on this trauma right and and so i want to take this opportunity to maybe move to another topic which um i think is very important and i and i, I love about you is um, this workshop you're doing called embodied spirituality can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Thank you. You know, embodied spirituality is like a, a notion that's kind of like becoming more and more popular in some ways, but uh, not always is well understood. And basically, like I think uh, against the historical background, what we could say very simply is that most religions, more spirituality, even contemplative traditions like Buddhism and many others, you know, they have like developed what uh, what they call a heart chakra spirituality a spirituality that is mostly based in the cultivation of like uh, the more subtle dimensions of the heart equanimity compassion uh, agape love you know and a state of consciousness and very often this has been done in in, in the detriment of other equally important, vital, and for me, equally sacred dimensions of the human being, that is uh, our bodies, our instincts, and even other more passionate emotions uh, in the heart. And I think this gives us like a very kind of dissociated uh, spiritual life that translates, for example, in what we are seeing now, like the Me Too Guru movement, you know, in which like so many, even like highly accomplished lamas and, and highly accomplished like psychic healers, indigenous elders you know they go into like sexually harassing and abusing uh, many women and even children at times so i think it's very this is very important that we try to cultivate like uh, an spiritual that in, in, you know includes the whole person the whole person and resacralize the entire human being versus seeing the body and sexuality as something less sacred or something we need to control or regulate in order to to develop spiritually yeah, this is so important. You know, like Margot Anand, as a tantra teacher, would say is that all these spiritual traditions, they just tell you not to look below the waist because it's dangerous. But so I just want to give the audience a little bit more of a sense of what's happening in those in those workshops because I did the first one uh, and for me it was, you know, one of the most powerful experiences 
Can we describe a little bit the type of exercise and what you've seen? You've done this workshop for a long time. What is the um, empirical mm. outcome? Mm. Yeah, uh, I'm a Scorpio. I like to be a bit intriguing and mysterious. So I normally don't uh, <laughs> unveil like the description of the practices because, uh, you know, in like ways, some very, they're very simple practices. What I can say is that they involve like a respectful, mindful, physical contact among participants. I call we call them interactive embodied meditations like a lot of meditation practice takes place like uh, without contact from other people most of it you know so this is like bringing like contemplative practice uh, with the body and also like tapping into kind of like the vital energies of the human being and this is part of what start kind of like integrating like the two polarities that has been more dissociated in our culture like consciousness and instinct or spirituality and sexuality, you know. So it's a word that is very integrative and does not involve necessarily like nudity or like a sexual activation, like like some neo-tantra workshops or others, you know. So it's a much it's much more subtle and the word, but uh, in a way like, it's extremely deep and it can go very, very deep and like certain clicks in people's energy that sometimes stay. So um, I've been facilitating that word for... Um, 20 years almost, um, we used to offer it at SLN Institute in California and many other places. Yeah, it's very kind of collaborative. That's another dimension that is very important. Uh, normally at the beginning of the workshop, we, we offer some tools, like for people to learn certain tools about physical contact, boundaries, things like this. And then they're very quick by the second day, like people start kind of like co-creating their own contracts or collaborating, choosing from a variety of exercises, which is the one that they want to do and with who. And that's very important because when a work is taking everybody to the same you know, to the same places, you know, that could be very growthful, but it's much more worthful when each person can choose wherever they need to go. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll say that for now. And I don't know if you want to elaborate or add something. You know, I, maybe I quickly share my experience. For me, this idea of using another person's body for to, to create a sort of a, of a mystical moment where the receiver and the giver are 100% present mm. and just using their body energy to in, in an act of love, really, in an act of support. So there is this moment where you gently touch each other on this vital part, in the chest, in the heart. And um, I felt there was two aspects for me. One was the idea of being in service, physically in service, where you stay sometimes in an uncomfortable position for 20 minutes on your, on your knee, just for the for the well-being of the other person and that feels great and then there is this energetic work that is very subtle but you you can feel you can feel the energy anyway we're not going to be able to explain it properly so where, where can the audience find info for the next uh, Embodied Spirituality workshop? Um, I post info on my website it's uh, Jorge N like in Nancy Ferrer dot com maybe I don't know if in the podcast, maybe we can also read yes, some things. Yes, uh, yes. I also had like a discount code for my next book for uh, listeners of this podcast. Very good. So we can also add that 10% discount. Uh, oh, great. Thank you very just, much. Just for, just for your listeners, Giancarlo. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm fascinated by this work because one of my issues, like many, I think, is I'm too much on my mind. You know, I'm too much intellectualized and... Sometimes that creates a disconnection with your body and results in, in just a, a non-harmonious living. What, what is this thing? with We are obsessed with the intellect because we needed it with the enlightenment and the sovereignty of reason. We needed that to get out from the darkness of the Middle Age. But didn't, don't you think we went too far? Yes. <laughs> In the sense, like, you know, if you look at it, you know, like most uh, education, you know, except in the kindergarten, you know, like focus on the mind. So basically, in order to get like in emotional in education, we go to the therapist. It's not in the schools. Uh, now it's starting to change little by little, you know. In order to uh, get the spiritual education, we have to go to the monastery or to Buddhist retreats or whatever, you know. So in a way, like the education we receive is very kind of like partial, very biased uh, towards the mind. And not only towards the mind, but just to the mind's analysis rational powers, you know, because the mind is beautiful. The mind also has very symbolic and imaginal, visionary, aesthetic dimension, you know, but education will receive in part because of the great success, you know, of instrumental reason and science, you know, it's like, this is how we get free from dogma, you know, and the enlightenment project, you know, and this is how, how we get things done that matter, 
like science. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and all this, uh, it's really beautiful and valuable, but it's like far from a holistic knowledge that not only involves the mind, but involves also the knowing of the heart or more primordial instinctive knowing and the knowledge of the body. And this is very important because for our minds, when they don't value all these other types of knowledge, that's where they get the stress. They get the stress because they believe that the thing they have been told, they have to do all the work by themselves, they have to know everything by themselves, you know, they start getting like this kind of like pride, it's like mental pride in a way. And I think it's important for the mind to start kind of like root itself in the body, that it's its own home. When the mind is rooted in the body, it stops looking for universal truths outside in big theories of everything because that's a compensation just looking for something in the abstract world that you can only get inside of you, you know. And when the mind is connected to the heart, it becomes like more uh, warmer. <laughs> it's kind of warmer and connected to the vital energy is not only more erotic, but also is connected to the deepest sources of creativity that is not in the brain. They are not in the brain. They are not in the right hemisphere. <laughs> They are in the life energy that can create another human being. And also it's an energy that is like the deepest creativity uh, of life flowing through us. So that's where true genuine creativity comes from. In my understanding and my experience, I differentiate between two types of creativity, you know, like a permutation, mental permutation of already known ideas. That's the most normal. But what about genuine creative developments emerging from, from your guts, and I think that's what also when we start kind of resituating the mind as a member of a team player with the rest of who we are, we can start accessing those deep layers of creativity and the mind can also become less anxious and more at peace that I think we all need that, including myself. Yes, because the mind, for some reason, managed to always make you feel you're in danger, right? We inherited that from a prehistorical time where we needed to be aware of the saber-toothed tiger. But mm. now that we lost this physical danger, the mind seems to have a tendency of telling you what is wrong with you, what, what can go wrong. And and so I like this say that say that the, the master is a horrible servant. No, it's a horrible master, but a beautiful servant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so just to go on the next topic about this mind-body-spirit discussion, I know you're also a practitioner of, of plant medicine. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I've worked with uh, many plant medicines for many, many decades, uh, with um, particular ayahuasca, mushrooms, also some, some synthetics, although I was always been drawn to more natural plants. Uh, I think there is a deeper, wider intelligence beyond your uh, selfhood, deep selfhood and the cosmos that guides you, that protects you. And for the last 16 years, I found uh, San Pedro, Huachuma, cactus from Peru, and that's kind of the plant medicine I felt called to uh, to work with. Uh, and after seven, eight years, I was given recipe and authorization from a lineage uh, in the Secret Valley of Peru to offer ceremonies. That's also what I do. And I have to say, like, it, for me, it's, it's plant, uh, it's medicine has its own. I, it's like with monogamy and polyamory and, and novogamy. I don't believe one is better than the other in any absolute universal way. You, you find the same in the plant world. Some people in ayahuasca, ayahuasca is the deepest plant, is the most transforming. It's like people who are in, the, in Mexico with the mushrooms, like oh, mushrooms, there's nothing like the mushrooms. Well, all of the plants, they have their own areas of expertise. And depending on your moment, one of them could be more appropriate than others. And I think that's part of one of the things, one of the new jobs, you know, new professional careers of people else who have all this deep knowledge of different plants and can advise people, you know, depending on where they are and what they need, um, which one, because I, for, I don't want to generalize, but for me, ayahuasca is amazing, like to uh, put you in a path with integrity. When you're out of integrity, ayahuasca, like uh, really, really helpful. And of course, among many other things, uh, mushrooms are for me the kings of the death and rebirth, you know, like uh, to experience like a death of your ego and being reborn uh, but for people are also different you know and uh, for me San Pedro is also teaches like this deep lesson that um, against our Judeo-Christian 
baggage, you know, that in order to grow psycho-spiritually even very deeply, you do not need to suffer. <laughs> you can do so in, in celebration, in community, in joy, in, in harmony, you know. So each of the plants have its own expertise and depending on your moment, one of or the other could be uh, better. And also depending on your psychological conditions, I know many people have done ayahuasca and, and even mushrooms and they can be destabilized psychically, psychologically, because maybe they have some predispositions, psychological predispositions, and those experiences were like too much to integrate. There's the challenge of integration with many of these plants, and that's also why, like San Pedro, it's much far easier to integrate this, you know, at the construction of your functional ego. It's not really bad trips or fragmentation possible, and uh, it's much easier to integrate in everyday life. This is so interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic, but can you elaborate a little bit more? I completely understand why you say that ayahuasca uh, is more like is like an um, integrity uh, referee that slap your butt if you're out of integration, and that happened to me many times, and and I, I totally understand that the mushroom, the death rebirth. But when you mentioned the San Pedro and this idea of growing not in suffering. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. We have received from the Judeo-Christian tradition like this, like uh, it's a deeply ingrained assumption that we occur in our unconscious, even consciousness depends on the people, that in order to grow spiritually, uh, seriously, to be serious of spirituality, needs to be a path of discipline and suffering and suffering, you know, like the archetype of Christ on the cross, you know, it's like... <laughs> Pain and suffering leads to resurrection <laughs> and going to heaven, you know, and salvation, right? Uh, is through uh, redemption, is through suffering, basically. That's like the deep, deep archetype here, you know. And, you know, like there is, of course, a time in our lives in which we it's important to face uh, our shit. <laughs> it's important to face like, our deepest fears, even psychosis or death or meaninglessness, you know. But those experiences can also help you. It forces you and uh, it helps you to also help others when they are there. But I think there is also a moment in life in which uh, you don't need to go to those experiences again. And uh, sometimes mushrooms, depending on the dosage, can go there uh, very often. Ayahuasca can go to many different places, you know. And uh, with, with San Pedro, I found that, uh, that that's not the case. And that's why I said, like, and still you can grow psycho-spiritually very deeply, but uh, without the concern of, like, you know, what is called a bad trip, that is a fragmentation of the psyche, of the ego, you know, and people are not, they, don't, they lose their center, you know, uh, they think they're, uh, you know, Stanislav Grof work, like, they're like, there's no way out. I mean, hell is the eternal Eternal now is the shadow of cosmic consciousness. I'm here in hell for eternity. And I've experienced that. And uh, it's uh, fruitful uh, in some ways. I don't desire it to anyone. I don't want to go back again. I don't think I need to. And, uh, and I think with, uh, that's why like with San Pedro, like there's, there's no, no danger of going there. And at the same time, at some point in our development, it, it could be necessary or important to go to these places. Yes, I just wanted to clarify for the listener that those plants are not legal in, in, in most countries and also can be very disorienting. So you have to really choose the right facilitator or guide or shaman that you feel comfortable with, that you know a little bit, you need really need to feel safe. And so I would really do a very deep research uh, if and when you decide to approach this substance. I remember one shaman, which I worked many years, would use this phrase saying, you know, you receive, you integrate, and you apply. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit? How can, because I think that in some of these practitioners of this medicine, there is not much guidance in the integration mm -hmm. and definitely no guidance on the, <laughs> on the application. Yeah, that's part of the problem. Like uh, when these plants were taken in the traditional societies, mostly indigenous, uh, you know, the integration was happening more organically because the, the whole culture was geared towards, you know, a, a cosmovision that would help people, you know, going through those rites of passages and uh, to be integrated, you know, in society in a different way. They were given a different role, for example. Now they are adults when they go through that experience. And of course, the younger also integrate but in the modern world you know many people have like these experiences uh, uh, and then they later they don't know what to do with them 
and, and most definitively traditional healers are not trained to help Western people to integrate their experiences. Maybe a few, a little, but they are not, and they don't, they don't care. I mean, they, they, they say, no, no, just drink more medicine. I mean, that's what they tell you, like, no, just come back, drink more medicine. It's like, but gratefully, like, uh, fortunately, like, there is every, more, every time more centers, you know, like in Peru and many other places in which traditional healers, they come together with Western psychologists and uh, Western people, and they start doing more integrative work. I think that's the future, that's the power and possibility for Western people, you know, when there is that kind of both integrative work. For me, like, uh, integration, uh, it's super important. Definitely, like, uh, I always recommend, like, uh, both time in nature and also recommend after these experiences. But time in nature that is not just going for a walk, but it's, it's like a mindful, sensuous connection with nature because nature is like first like an organic reference of harmonious integration. So spending a lot of time in nature after some of these experiences by yourself, touching and smelling, uh, hugging, uh, that's really, really helpful. And of course, also like and this connects with embodied spirituality work. Uh, many of those practices you did, like, uh, you know, like the rooting, you know, uh, in the feet and legs, practices that help the rooting of the experience, you know, um, that's very helpful too. And actually in our next retreat, uh, we may do that in the morning for integration, a practice, you know, feet and legs to, to help people to come into the body when they have experience, you know. And ultimately, in terms of the application piece, you know, that's, I really like that. Really, really depends. Uh, when each case needs to be seen uh, case by case. But for example, let's say that a person, um, you know, lives in the city and then has this vision with machines like, I just really need to live in nature. That's very common. That's a very common experience that I just need to live in nature. I need to live the city, you know. Then comes back to the everyday reality with the structures of their lives. The work is in the city. And it's like, well, this is it's not something I can do now, you know. But perhaps there is one step you can give in that direction. For example, become a member of like a local garden in the city. So for me, the important is not like to make the radical change uh, brought by the vision that in some cases could be the way to go, especially when you're in a crossroad, in an existential crisis, but just keep just one step in that direction after its practice, you know. And if you do that, it's, there is something that gets like integrated in your daily life through, through action. Yes, this is very clear and very useful. Let me touch as the last topic, you almost did a second PhD in neuroscience. So we now, I think there is a scientific consensus on this idea of plasticity, neuroplasticity. You can rewire your brain. Our parents would say things like, oh, your grandmother was a neurotic. It's nice. She's never going to change. But now we know there's been some studies with um, Mathieu Ricard and the, and the monk, long-term meditator that we see with the brain scan a change in uh, in their brain so uh, how is this knowledge that you can rewire your brain then to what extent it's important every day to rewire the brain because the brain rewiring re requires work mm. i remember a, a neuropsychopharmacologist um, from from london said that you know, our neurocircuitry in our brain is like the deep track of the cross-country skiing. Mm. You have these little skis that are deep stuck in these tracks. And so you're stuck in there. And if you want to create a new neurocircuitry, you have to have the strength to get out of those tracks mm. and stay out long enough to start digging the new tracks. Mm. But unfortunately, the old tracks are deeper and they pull you back. Mm. So this is a good metaphor that I like to share because... You need every day to do either your meditation or your visualization or mm. concrete stuff, like you were saying, connecting with nature. It's do you agree that it's a daily work that mm. is not going to happen by itself? Yes, yes, I, I think so. And, um, you know, a colleague of mine from California Institute of Integral Studies wrote a book called Neurogenesis. You want to check it out and maybe interview him, he's a great. And, uh, what's, talk, what's his name for the brand, listener? Brand Corright. Mm -hmm. Brand Corright, Neurogenesis. Uh, and uh, he's talking about precisely that all day. It's a very practical book. Diet uh, covers everything about neurogenesis. Like, uh, and uh, so uh, I read the book and, uh, and, you know, 
you know, having done experiments of my brain <laughs> to see what has happened then after doing certain practices. But uh, but I, w- I would add, I uh, just want to add to what you say uh, about like meditation and visualization and that kind of work we can do every day at home or yoga. Like, uh, you know, I think like the single uh, things also could be like uh, not just so uh, about like a discipline, you know, could be very, could be very playful and enjoyable. It's like uh, we're here in Ibiza, for example, like going f- to swim in the lift waters of the Mediterranean every day. I'm sure that has like an effect on your brain or like uh, people who love to dance, you know, there's a lot of last, like uh, now research of like movement impact on the brain, right? Uh, because, you know, we used to move so much more, you know, like uh, as a species, you know, like for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, from the from trees and running all the time and now our life is much more stagnant or static you know so people who are even doing like here in Ibiza and other places like a lot of ecstatic dance for example and, and the movement I think all those things who are very enjoyable uh, also can re, you know have an impact on your brain and this just connects with one last thing I wanted to tie with the San Pedro like or with uh, it's like a, we also have like in this in our culture because of our again like this kind of heavy duty Christian tradition. And when I say that, I'm just talking about the you know more kind of dogmatic forms of Christianity that we receive through the charts, not about the mystical core of the tradition, which is really beautiful and realistic in many ways. But we have like this split also in our psyches between between the sacred and the and the ludic, the sacred and the playful. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and I think that's like another split that we need to to put together, you know, because the sacred can be very reverent, uh, can be very humorous, can be very light as well, as you know, many Sufi, and many Sufi uh, masters know, and and some of these kind of crazy wisdom teachers also know. Even some of them are real rascals that I would I would pretty, I would take some distance from them. <laughs> That's very interesting. So we're now in July, and so you should follow Jorge's recommendation, go dancing and go swimming. Um, let, let me allow, if you don't mind, where are you now personally on your on your life journey? How old are you now? I'm 52. So you closed your um, teaching career. I mean, you're still a teacher very much so, but, mm. but um, so how, how, tell us a little bit, how did you go from all those years as a professor at the university and now living in Ibiza? Yes, yes, totally. Well, I mean, I spent like 20 years teaching in uh, the university in in San Francisco in California. And uh, it's a beautiful university also connected to the spiritual dimension. And at the same time, it's very, you know, it's very mental work, you know. So there is no way even in that university that your life doesn't get a bit unbalanced, you know, like too, too many hours in the computer, too many hours reading dissertations, student papers, it's like, stopping you know so for a while like uh the last years me and my partner my then partner uh, in california had like this dream of like me gradually moving away from academic world to focus more closely and more directly on the healing and transformation of people you know she was like very talented psychotherapist unfortunately she passed away a year and a half ago and uh and that was one of the most transformative times of my life uh, was sudden was unexpected and since then like that was part of the catalyst for me is like dropping everything dropping my university dropping academic life and you know like following that dream that was a shared dream i don't think i'm following her dream it was my dream too of like just uh, doing only things that uh, are more you know directly working with people like workshops and, and ceremonies i still write books of course but the you know the next book uh, apart from this one that yes, it's coming out. It's going to be in Spanish. It's a popular version of this Love and Freedom. And it's got a major publisher uh, interested in the book in Spain. So I'm um, very excited about that. So that kind of thing, like reaching more and more people and working more closely also through counseling practice in, in people's healing and transformation. That's that's what I'm coming to be. So was part of that new chapter of my life, like starting from scratch, like mm-hmm. a, a new life. So thanks for asking and do you want to start a family, have children? Is this something on the agenda? Um, I don't think that's my calling. Uh, you need to be open to life and to the mystery. Like, so I, I'll never say never. Whenever people say I will never do that, I always kind of like, kind of like half a smile <laughs> because I've seen that people who are very determined about life kind of plays with you. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like, uh, 
it was never my calling in the sense like uh, I felt my call was to um, try to transform this world as much as possible. You know, my 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 grain of my contribution, little contribution, my grain of salt, sun, grain of sun to that, so that you know, children from other people could come find a bit better world or finer world or more healthier world, you know, less crazy world that we live in. And like for me, like to focus uh, so much, if I had a kid, I would want to be a really good father. And that means to, as you know, <laughs> and that means to focus a lot of energy and time in just one individual because it has your ADN, uh, DNA, you know, and uh, I totally respect and admire parents very deeply. And I love children, uh, but I'm more, I feel more um, universal uncle have many godsons and goddaughters and I love children, but I don't think that's on my path, but who knows? Mm-hmm. So if, if you close your eyes and you visualize yourself in 20 years' time, what would you like to see? Ah, that's a beautiful question. I think I see myself like living uh, even more deeply um, embedded in nature that I live now, like a bit even farther away from from the city, uh, um, could be in Ibiza, could be somewhere else. I see myself living a more contemplative life and, uh, you know, uh, still working with people, but maybe like, you know, more more selectively or do things um, that uh, are enjoyable. Living in community, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big proponent and big supporter of living in community for all sorts of reasons, emotional, ecological, you know, talking about relationships before, there's a huge difference when a, a couple who are monogamous or whatever, and they live in a community when they're living by themselves, they receive so much emotional support from different people, you know. They have a lot of mediators in conflict. It's so much, much easier to navigate, you know. So community, nature, more contemplation, and fun. <laughs> so I'm not going to let you go yet. I just want... <laughs> <laughs> no, because you mentioned community. This is a big topic now. I don't know if you agree, but I read somewhere that the ideal number is, you know, 150 people because, um, with, you know, you can know intimately 150 people. More than that, it becomes complicated. And and then recently I heard Yuval Harari saying that the problem is that when you try to put together, living together, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, then inevitably you develop power structure and with power structure and hierarchy, then that's where things mm-hmm. start to go, start to be complicated. So you living in a community, but it's it's like a big house. It's like, what, 10, 15 of us? Yeah, 8, 8, 9, 8, 10. 8, 9, 10. But um, what do you think? Uh, I don't know what, <laughs> where should I go, where I'm, where I'm going with that. Do you see in the future in this planet a more n- nucleus of, of, of 100 people do you see uh, exodus from the cities? Mm-hmm. Do you think this is something which is a uh, um, welcome and encouraged? Absolutely, yes. And uh, I think the, it was like a trend already in our culture and the, the COVID crisis has accelerated tremendously this. I mean, I was in Barcelona during the COVID crisis. I was one of the people in the diaspora, but it was not the first. I was not the last. So many of my friends, so many people I know, they, they left Barcelona. They went to the countryside, many of them living in community or looking for community. So it's like a really strong trend also in many other parts of the world. And uh, as you, like, I've been very interested in communities, spiritual communities in particular, and spent time in Auroville, in India, in Damanhur, in Italy, and uh, other places. I've never been in Tamara. I was invited, but not, it hasn't Ta- happened as Ta- yet. Tamera. Tamera, yeah. Tamera, Tamera. Yeah. I want to go. Uh, I had friends who went there, and I uh, spoke highly about what's happening there. So I think like the yeah the the size is important, but um, our village is like five thousand. Uh, Tamahul place, but uh, what I what for example like our our village like I was five thousand people, but they were like they were living in a small um, uh, communities uh, campaments, you know. So when I spent there like a month, I was living with this beautiful community called Adventure. There were like eight ten people within the larger structure. So that's what I see, probably seeing that it's where I'm moving towards a lot of communities and, and there could be like at some point kind of more, you know, moving to kind of federations, <laughs> federations of small communities, like a networks of, of people and like a, a new way of life can be emerging from the grassroots, you know, from this kind of like a networks of 
communities, you know. And of course, like what I see, like with my visionary hat on, <laughs> and that sometimes I put, I see like, you know, like a big polarization still before integration in our culture and in the world between like very technologically driven communities and people, you know, with virtual reality and uh, non-technology. And like, I mean, that's huge today, yeah. huge. And this is going to be like another camp, like really going back to, to nature, to the tribe, to, and it will get polarized for a while. And my hope is that they will get somehow integrated in the future. But I think it's going to take some time. Yes. But so since you have your visionary hat on, let me, I, I, I'm having so much fun to have you here available. <laughs> my friend Daniel Pinchback, when, when we had Trump in America and the country was getting really polarized, and then I was like, Daniel, this is, we're going to reach, we're reaching the bottom. This is mm. like a cup of ayahuasca. We're now going to try to look at the, at the new American dream. And he said, um, no, I think we need another cup. And I think the other cup was COVID. <laughs> so with COVID, you know, we know what happened. The question now to you is, you seems you mentioned a third cup <laughs> because you said that it might be a, before the integration, there's going to be more polarization between the mm. nanotechnology. Uh, what's the term of the yeah, people that believe that? Te- yeah, technological, uh, you know, like delivers. <laughs> yeah, singularity. Yeah, singularity too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But so, how do we see this planet of ours uh, in the next 50, 100 years? Wow, that's that's a great mystery. That's, that's a, a really mystery. great mystery because things are moving so fast, and uh, and when we, whenever we think or we feel that we have a sense of what's happening, then look, you know, COVID shows up, you know, and turns everything upside down, you know. So I think that's very humbling. I think that's very humbling, uh, and I think we we need to develop like this sense of like uh, uncertainty and humbleness. It's like wow. We really think we have things together here as homo sapiens who are very smart and have all this technological thing. And then suddenly life is like, bomba! And I don't know, like 33 million people. I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know? And like uh, all the major minds in the world are trying to figure it out. And it has taken a year, more than a year, like to, to start making sense and find remedies, you know? So um, I think, I don't know, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. <laughs> By nature, uh, I always believe like um, there is like a deeper meaning, you know, like in terms of our evolutionary history of unfolding of life. When there is this deep crisis, there is something better around the corner and coming in. Uh, an example of this is the rise of Donald Trump in the states. For me, it was very clear, you know, uh, that was horrible. I mean, I was living in, in California and we're all horrorized. And we're like, what the fuck? This feels like a surrealist movie. We don't want to be here. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, after one or two years, you start realizing that without Donald Trump in power, all those grassroots organizations, Latino and, and Black and, and the women, is like, they wouldn't have raised with such a force. And now we have, like, you know, Alexandra, like New York, like, uh, who might well become the first real woman American president, you know? And thanks to Trump. A- AOC, know? AOC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. I have hopes for yeah. uh, even when yeah. things like really got really, really like dystopian, like yeah. with Trump administration. Yeah. I have hopes that there is like some deeper historical logic to it. <laughs> but uh, I don't feel arrogant about that. Uh, I feel confident um, because I've seen it through history, you know, and I believe there is like an impulse towards, you know, towards like um, greater consciousness, greater interconnectedness. I mean, even many of these values that before, even a few years ago, they were considered like no agey bullshit, you know. Now that there is spoken and spread in like high culture, like mindfulness and yoga and altruism, you know, and compassion, I mean, they're reaching those levels, yeah. you know. So in few years, you know, so uh, I feel very excited about our moment, like, and I want to really probably like we're close to finish our interview, you know, yes. uh, with a really hopeful note, you know, that uh, we want the chance to be faster, of course. Uh, I'm the yes. first one, and it feels things feel pretty slow at times because we're impatient. But if you look historically at our history, what has happened in the last decade, even two decades, it's unbelievable. 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 Yeah. So I think we need to look at that side too and don't yeah. get uh, overwhelmed or, um, you know, uh, undermined by all this media that give us all the only bad news. Yes, yes, yes. Things like regenerative agriculture, that incredible project, creating life, creating water, so this is great, past the one-hour mark, and um, I think we're going to wrap it up. I'm going to 
try to maybe have you back and try to do the same thing in Spanish with a new book, <laughs> if I'm going to be able. Also, we will, um, you know, start a conversation. We started a conversation on Instagram, on Mango TV. I would like to hear from the audience what are the topics you are more interested on. And uh, Jorge really encapsulate most of the themes that are dear to, to Mangusta production. You know, we, we the, the slogan is uh, sex, drugs, and regeneration. <laughs> so Jorge is an expert on those three topics. Oops. And, uh, and so we'll have him back. Thank you very much for listening. Is there anything else you want to share? We covered a lot of ground. No, just gratitude for the invitation and, uh, and just my hope that what whatever uh, Giancarlo or I have said here, um, you know, it's it's even a bit of value for um, the listeners or many of you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. What el tira sonoro, sonoro en ti. 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 What a tira sonora, sonora en ti.